0: Hello, everyone. You are listening to Black Adoptees Identities. I am your host, Christelle Perricure, and I am a coach and a multidisciplinary creative. Please join me to explore what identity means for adult adoptees and how they form their identity for their own adoption journey. In this podcast, you will hear a variety of views from adult adoptees about their own experience of adoption and how adoption has impacted them and what lessons they have learned along the way. Please note that the guests have been courageous in sharing their stories, and some of the content and subject matters can be emotionally challenging and distressing for some individuals. Please use your own judgment, whether to continue to listen or not, and do look after yourself. And if you are affected by some of the issues discussed, please seek appropriate support and help. This is a special episode of Black Adoptee's Identities. It was recorded to celebrate the end of season one of the podcast and bring back together previous guests from the podcast. In this episode, you will hear Dr. Abby Ashbury, Tony Hines, Annalisa Tokara-Jones, Lydia Berke, Anthony Lynch, and Morgan Harvey discussing Reclaiming Their Identities. Welcome everybody, Uh, we are on Black Adoptees Identities, uh, and I am Crystal Pericuerre and I host uh, uh, the podcast um, once a week generally. Uh, So today it's kind of a special uh, session, so we're doing this live uh, with a live audience. And I am joined today by previous um, guests uh, that has been already on the podcast, so some of you might have already heard about their stories or, um, or even know them um, for the the adoption community. So I'm really excited again to welcome uh, every single one of uh, our guests today and to interact with them once more. So to start, I am going to ask uh, our panelists to introduce themselves. So it's going to be just a brief introduction because you you can't always go back to the previous podcast and find out in more detail about their own story. So Morgan, I'm going to start with you and ask you to introduce yourself and then we're going around the room to, to ask each one of you to introduce yourself. Sorry, it was giving me
1: (laughs) trouble I'm muting. Hi, I am Morgan. I am a same race um, domestic here in the United States um, adoptee. I am a chef and a doula. um, And um, with my birth work, my biggest um, push is to make sure that I help adoptees in the birth space. Um, It's a lot to deal with when it comes to birth. And so to be able to. deal with adoptee issues and trauma, as well as um, what birth brings to the table as well,
2: Um, that's where I would like to make my mark within our community.
0: Lydia, do you want to go
2: next? Yeah, Um, my name is Lydia. I am a transracial adoptee. I was born in Detroit, Michigan, in the United States and raised about an hour north. Um, I went to school and got my bachelor's in social work. I'm currently working towards my master's in clinical social work. Um, I've spent the last four years working as a permanency and adoption caseworker. Um, I've also spent time working in a group home for teen moms and doing other things. Um, I create content on Instagram, trying to educate adoptive parents, specifically white adoptive parents, um, as well as creating community for adoptees. And then um, I've started doing some work with several agencies and writing um, curriculums and kind of trainings for their caseworkers to be more competent when working with um, foster youth and adoptees.
0: great thank you
3: Lydia Anthony you're next hi everyone I'm Anthony I'm 23 and how I kind of describe myself is a mixed non-binary adoptee so I am Jamaican white kind of depends what DNA test you do and I was I, I was born and raised in London and um, I'm just really passionate about identity and what I sort of call complex identities. So individuals who belong to multiple races, cultures and families. And I created an organisation called In Between Lines, which is all about sort of creating spaces to talk about identity in a bit more of a mature and complex way than it usually is. I also work with Quorum, which is a big adoption charity in the UK. Uh, and more recently, I've been working with them on policy, uh, so looking at how we can embed lived experience into sort of all levels of decision making in both adoption agencies, but also uh, in policy. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you, Anthony.
4: Um, Tony, you're next. Hi, my name is Tony Hines. I am an interracial adoptee adopted in the United States. I had an open adoption. I was also adopted by same sex couple, uh, queer identifying couple. And I do work as a training specialist at Center for Adoption Support and Education where I've trained prospective parents, adoptive parents, foster parents, talk to adoptees, and seeking to do more work with birth families in and around adoption. I also do research as part of my PhD program, studying adoption and within that interracial adoption and the importance of connectedness for black adoptees. so pleasure to be here in community and to create. and I heard in our pre-intros uh, Abby was was mentioning rewriting narratives on adoption um and so credit to her for for using that term and seeking myself to try to do that as well.
0: Abby, is your next.
5: So um, I am Abby Hasbury. I am a transracial or interracial adoptee, Tony's so trying to, to <laughs> get me to, to adjust my language. Um, uh, adopted in the U.S. Um, to a white family. I was actually adopted in 1971, so one year before the National Association of Black Social Workers put out their statement in the U.S. Um, against transracial adoption, and so because of that, I ended up being the only black kiddo in my family, although that wasn't their plan originally. Um, I work now as a therapist, working primarily primarily with adult adoptees, working on everything from um, trauma to identity development to just day-to-day um, living issues. I am an um, educator by trade, was a principal and a teacher for many years before switching over to this kind of therapy, therapeutic work, and have a narrative. Uh, memoir coming out um, in 2024 called Adopting Privilege, which talks a lot about my story, but also focuses on trauma and how we kind of get through the traumas that we face as adoptees and just as people in general and how we get through that and get to kind of a positive place where we are productive and happy and able to function in a world where normal is not really normal. There's no such thing, but they keep telling us that there is. So I'm happy to be here in this space and um, do share my story a lot on podcasts and workshops and keynotes whenever anyone will listen because in addition to being an adoptee I was also a or I am also a birth mother I had a childhood as a teenager it was a um, I call myself a victim of birth mother grooming Um, other people call it adoption coercion um, but I definitely call it grooming because I was a minor and was um, talked into something that I didn't want to do so I'm here to share my story and glad to be here.
0: Thank you Abby. Annalisa you're next.
6: Hi, I'm Annalisa Takara-Jones, I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Sheffield, and I'm uh, exploring adoptee identity, um, but predominantly public communication, so how we use social media to talk about adoption. Um, And within that, I'm also kind of exploring um, the legacy of colonialism on adoption practices in the UK today, um, purely because I'm sick and tired of hearing about forced adoption, but what about about adoption that's happening currently? So that's kind of um, a bit about my research. Prior to that, I was the CEO and founder of um, Adoptive Futures, which is now named the Dunbar Project. Um, so I left that uh, organization in July, I think, um, and I now work um, for We Are Family Adoption as the content and program manager. So I work predominantly with adopters. Um, it's a peer-to-peer adopter community. Um, so a lot of my role is around comms and how um, to kind of, yeah, curating the content for for the membership that we have at We Are Family. Um, I'm a mixed race adoptee. Um, I identify as black and and uh, mixed race. Um, and I was adopted around the age of four. That's a bit about me.
0: Thank you, Annalisa, And thank you so much to all of you for joining me today. Um, I am really grateful for your time and for all the wisdom we're going to be sharing with us today. Um, when I put the call out to all of you, I wasn't expected many people to come to this panel. And then I was so excited to see that pretty much everyone who's been on, on the podcast were interested in joining to have this live discussion. So I am really, really grateful. And part of the reason I put this on was um, for us to continue this discussion around our adoption journey, giving voices to adoptees, because generally it's always other people who talk about our own story. Um, but also it's to to bring awareness that there's a lot of commonality in our adoption, but at the same time, each one of our stories are unique uh, in itself. So it's really to to discuss all the different nuances in our stories, but especially in terms of how we develop our own identity. So today, the team that I wanted to explore is around reclaiming our identity. So I want to ask each one of you uh, on the panel, what reclaiming our identity or your identity means when you hear that, what comes to mind? Tony, can I start with you?
4: Yeah, sure. So when I think of the term reclaiming, I, as an adoptee, first think of what it means for me then to feel disconnected from my identity. And so often as adoptees, as interracial adoptees, as Black adoptees, generally, our difference is the first thing that people recognize about us, our difference from our adoptive families, our difference frequently from our peers in our communities because our communities are frequently these homogenous, predominantly white spaces where we stick out like a sore thumb, right? And so we don't feel that we really belong to any particular place in the ways that we would really want to. And we don't feel we belong when we go out to the store, in school, then we also frequently don't feel like we belong in our own households, with our own families, with our own siblings. And because of that, we question, you know, okay, who am I then if I don't feel I belong to my family or my outside community, and if I don't feel I belong, then I'm not really able to then claim my identity. So then what goes on with being able to claim identity is then where do we find a sense of belonging in the first place that allows us to feel like we can then claim belonging to a certain place or space or racial identity. So for me, that really meant growing up and having peer relationships where I was able to have these peer relationships. My peers were telling me, you know, hey, I know you came from, a white adoptive household, the white household, but you really need to still learn how to take care of your hair. You know, you really still need to learn what types of lotion we need to use during the wintertime for our skin. It's not the same type of lotion that your moms are able to use and just go outside with in December or January in Washington, D.C., where I grew up. And so those things taught me that, yes, I had this upbringing that was different from my peers, But it didn't mean that I was any less racially authentic than they were. And it took me a long time to come to that realization. Took me a long time to come to that type of claiming. And it's something that I feel like is, is an evolving thing for adoptees. We're always reclaiming different pieces of our identities that we didn't know that we didn't feel authentic in the first place sometimes. Sometimes these things don't come up until We have kids or we get married or we go off to college and then we start thinking to ourselves i want to reclaim who i am as a black person i want to reclaim who i am as someone who is going to be a parent now now i want to reclaim who i am as an adoptee and i want to be proud of being an adoptee while at the same time saying that i'm not proud of system of adoption and so we're able to do this juxtaposition of being proud to be Black adoptees and claiming that identity, while also stating that we still find inherently that there's a lot wrong with the practice of adoption. So I think some of those, those instances, for me, those peer relationships are really important, though, in reclaiming and claiming uh, my identity.
6: Thank you, Tony. Uh,
0: Annalisa, I'm going to ask you the same question. What does reclaiming your identity means to you?
6: Um, reclaiming what was stolen from me. Um, I think I spent a lot of my 20s, um, definitely in massive, massive depression. Um, and so I think for me, like, like I'm, I'm 36 now. And for me, like a lot of my, I guess, life at the moment is about okay, how do I experience kind of joy and freedom in my current state? Like, how do I move past like the trauma, the the life that was dealt to me, and kind of, you know, start exploring how to actually be free. And so for me at the moment, it's all about understand who I am in that context. Um, so like two, two years ago, um, my mum and my adoptive mum died, and four months later I found out that my biological mother died at the age of 28 from the separate literally from the trauma of the separation from me um and then pretty much three weeks after that I found out that um my adoptive parents um actually went to court and got my birth mum to basically sign over consent she never wanted to to give consent to me so I found out a lot of stuff sorry she never gave her consent consent for me to be adopted so I was a forced adoption so I found out a lot of this stuff in a really short period of time whilst grieving um from like my own adoptive mother dying so for me I think yeah it's just about reclaiming a life that I may that I don't know about, that I've got no kind of experience about. I don't know if it was a better life for me being adopted. I don't know. You know, I see it as a a different life. Um, So for me, that's what reclaiming my identity, reclaiming my history, reclaiming what was stolen.
0: Mm, Thank you, Annalisa. Mm. Lydia, what does reclaiming your identity means to you?
2: yeah so for me i think um like they both said it it starts with acknowledging the loss and the racial isolation that i grew up in um i had a unique experience that i know a lot of transracial adoptees didn't have where um, my parents intentionally enrolled me in a dance studio where there were other um black children and so it was great that's where i met the lady who did my hair for many years um but it also felt Um, I feel like the, I had this huge contrast in my life of my extracurricular. I was surrounded by people who looked like me and then everywhere else I went, I didn't, um. And so it was really hard to develop that identity because I just had kind of a taste of what it was like to be immersed in spaces with people that looks like me, um, where I felt more comfortable, but I didn't have that full time. Um, And so going into college, I really had this feeling of wanting to, you know, reclaim that, but also having to navigate these feelings of racial imposter syndrome, because I didn't understand all the in-group dynamics. I didn't Um, know all the cultural context. And um, it was really hard. I felt like I was behind in so many aspects of what it was to be Black. And so part of that was um, healing that, healing that inner child. Part of it was um, allowing myself to grieve what I had missed in my life and um, not having those relationships from a young age or those just intentional relationships um, with people that look like me. Like I said, I did have um, dance friends. I did have my hair beautician, but that's different than having an aunt or an uncle or a mom or a dad that you know really walks alongside you throughout your life. And so that's something that I really sought out in college and was able to find many mentors to walk alongside me. And I think for me, it was about finding um, identity in all dimensions of my life. So again, like dance, um, in my faith, attending a black church, um, finding friends, finding, um, restaurants, finding, you know, just social outlets. So it really was to me reclaiming was reclaiming that in all aspects of my life, um, to just be able to fully feel authentic and just fully immersed in what it, what I missed out on for so many years.
0: Thank you. Abby, I'm going to you next. What's reclaiming your identity means to you? Um,
5: so for me, I think it means a lot about like rewriting the story, my story for myself. And so when you think about um, adoptees, we are told a story of how we were adopted, why we were adopted, what it looks like, and often that story is from a perspective that doesn't actually represent what happened. For example, my parents told me a story that wasn't exactly true, but even starting with the fact that I was adopted um, as an infant, which to me sounds like you're adopted right away and you come into this family, but um, like learning later on after getting paperwork that I was... Actually adopted at five months old, and thinking about what that means for those first five months of my life—that I have no idea where I was or what happened to me—and so I was rewriting some of those things to say, "This is what it really looks like." It's taking back that narrative, reclaiming really my identity, is taking back the narrative from from a, the adoption institute, the institution that tells us that it's all about good things and gotcha days and replacing a family and like taking that narrative back and saying like, it isn't this story of this family who really wanted to do great by a baby, but it's more the story of a family who had lost and kind of wanted to re, to fill their own void. Um, and so it's rewriting some of those narratives for myself and saying, my story is about how I want to define my adoption, how I want to define my relinquishment too, as a, as a birth mother, instead of Um, going with the things that are out there and popular um, in society to make it seem like a thing that is not full of trauma and loss. So to me, it's reclaiming and refocusing adoption and my specific adoption on loss, grieving, healing, um, and all of those parts of it that we don't talk about so that we normalize adoption so that adoptees aren't out there thinking that something's wrong with them when they have these feelings that are contrary to the narrative that society sees as adoptees. So I'm sure we've all heard the, oh, your parents must be so great or you're so lucky. And so those kinds of things then make us feel like we are less than when we don't feel that way. And so reclaiming my identity is rewriting that narrative so that all adoptees can have their story in adoption and not feel like there's something wrong with them. Um, and so, yeah, I guess that's it. <laughs> I feel like I said a lot.
0: Thank you, Abby. Morgan, can I come to you next and ask you the same question? What reclaiming your identity means to you? Okay, I think we've lost Morgan. So Anthony, I'm gonna to come to you uh, and yeah, ask you the same question. What does reclaiming your identity means to you?
3: Um, yeah, firstly, I just want to say how much wisdom is being shared already, and how amazing it is to hear all these perspectives. Um, but for me, reclaiming identity is about how do I live in the ple- in the present and how do i become comfortable with the things that i don't know um and the things that i'll never know and learning that i don't actually need to have the full narrative of things um to sort of feel satisfied i feel like a lot of the um the adoption healing narrative that's told is like you have to find out about you know, what happened to you, your files, do your DNA tests, um, have reunion eventually. And those things are really important, but some people don't get those opportunities. And for me, it's about how do I find peace with my identity right now? Um, I think my entire sort of being mixed as well, uh, I'm sort of, my identity is uncertain to a lot of other people. And choosing not to sort of you know, pretend to be full black when I'm half black, and then also not taking it when people make sort of assumptions about my ethnicity and where I'm from. Uh, it's about giving up being digestible to other people um, and just sitting in your complexity and not, and staying in that boundary rather than sort of pretending to be someone that you're not. So, um, yeah, just to summarize, I think it's all about knowing the limits of your identity and not having to explain yourself to other people
0: Right. Oh, yeah. thank you so much anthony and um, thank you so much to everyone for sharing what reclaiming our identity means to you so some of you have mentioned about peer relationships and um having uh finding a way to belong to to our own family but also Having a space where we can be ourselves. I want to ask um, how is connecting to Black groups or Black community has supported you in your own journey of uh, forming a, a, your identity. And also if your parents, you would say you've been uh, in a, grew up in an environment where your parents were very uh, supportive and teaching you about race and culture. Or would you say you would have been more on the other hand of the spectrum where your parents didn't really have any uh, cultural competency and they didn't have any uh, social group that supported you in that uh, cultural identity uh, formation? And I think it's specifically, I'm going to ask first for those of you who has been adopted in the as a transracial adoptee first, and then I will ask the same question to those who's been adopted in the same way as family. Um, so I'm gonna ask um, Lydia, uh, as a transracial adoptee, how how does your environment uh, helped you uh, in forming your identity? Were your parents very encouraging with your cultural identity, or were they more not having much support in that sense?
2: Yeah, so I think there's two parts to that. So I'll kind of start with the family side. Um, Growing up, I always knew I was Black. Um, My parents said the first sentences I was speaking was talking about the differences between my Black skin, or I always, I wanted people to call me brown. I didn't like that people called me Black because it didn't match my crayons. Um, So my brown skin and my parents' white skin and my older brother's white skin. So it wasn't ever anything that was hidden. It wasn't ever something that I've been ashamed of or wanted to change. Um, And my parents always encouraged that within me. Where there was a, a lack of communication or education was them explaining to me how being black would impact me outside of my home right so like it was something very celebrated I knew what Kwanzaa was we listened to black music um like I said I went to a black dance studio but I was very taken aback and shocked and did not know how to navigate racism and um you know all that comes with that because it wasn't something that we talked about but They've always been very supportive. Um, I know a lot of adoptees, transracial adoptees, talk about how they feel like their parents are uncomfortable around grown adults that um, share their race. And I never felt that. You know, my mom would sit in the hair salon for hours um, and always appeared to be comfortable. She was fine asking questions and making conversation, the same with my dad at a barber shop or at the dance studio. Um, and so I feel like that really allowed me to step into those spaces and feel comfortable because I feel like a lot of times as adoptees, we're very intuitive and we really feel responsible for our adoptive parents' emotions. And so um, I definitely feel like if my parents were uncomfortable or those were spaces they did not want to be in, I would have felt less comfortable being in those spaces um, as a child. Now, as an adult, um, like I said, in all aspects of my identity, I've really um, stepped into those spaces. Um, it was hard in college, again, just dealing with the racial imposter syndrome. But now um, I live in a very um, racially diverse area. I go to a Black church. Um, my coworkers are Black. Um, so I really feel like I'm in a really comfortable space, in a space where my racial identity is celebrated, Um, but that's also because I'm around people who look like me. So um, it's a really beautiful thing. It's a really healing space. And I'm definitely um, honor my parents for their role in that and allowing me to be curious and, just always encouraged me to explore that, um, in all aspects of my life.
0: Thank you. Abby, I'm gonna ask you the same question, um, about how important it's been to have a community of Black people around you to form your identity, and in that same sense, did your parents were very encouraging in Bringing you in that in this space, but also teaching you about culture and your blackness, and talking about race and identity.
5: Yeah, I think that if Lydia and I had had our parents join, we would have had the perfect experience um, because I had everything opposite. So my parents talked to me a lot about race and what it meant to be a black person growing up in this society, and what it would look like and what racism and microaggressions felt like. We talked about those things all the time, but they did not at all bring blackness into my life. So I did not, I went to a predominantly white school, lived in predominantly white neighborhoods. Everything I did was predominantly white until I started to want in those schools to find black spaces for myself. Um, And I think that that made my mother uncomfortable and more and more uncomfortable as I got older and older. And in high school, um, all my friends were Black, and uh, I chose to stop going to the the private schools that they had sent me to where my mom was teaching and and started to go to um, the local traditional public schools so that I could be around Black people and have Black friends and date Black guys. And it made my parents definitely uncomfortable, and my mom definitely uncomfortable, so much so that... um, in high school she said to me that when she adopted me she believed in nurture over nature and that now that i was becoming so black she realized she was wrong and so that message to me was that my mom thought she could kind of love the black out of me and that she realized that at some point i was going to go after Black identity and claim my own identity, and it made her uncomfortable. So while they completely prepared me for racism and microaggressions and, like, having to be better and how to behave and how to, like, to show up in spaces and what white people were going to think of me if I did it in the U.S., she did not at all, or they did not at all um, welcome me actually stepping into that Black space. It made them definitely uncomfortable, and part of it, I think, was that they felt like it was a whole part of my life that they could not have access to or part of. And so it felt like a disconnect to them, like they were losing me in some way. Um, but I ended up going on to college and, and changing my major, my first my freshman year from psychology to African American studies and joining a black sorority as you can see over my shoulders. So like completely immersing myself in everything black because it was something that they they had not done for me.
0: Yeah, I I love that. Just switching the studies. <laughs> Uh, Tony, how is it for you, Um, because also you, in your case, you were raised by uh, same gender parents uh, in a white household, and you mentioned about peer relationship helping you a lot in your identity formation. So what's uh, your experience? Were your, your parents very supportive of providing this cultural identity and teaching about race and identity when you grew up, or it
4: was the opposite? My parents were kind of a combo pack, Lydia and Abby, with still some things that they should have done, could have done better, kind of baked into that. So one of my moms has a sister, and my mom was telling me that when I was adopted, her sister, her white sister, said something racist to her, she hasn't to this day told me exactly what that was or even if it was about my adoption it's implied that it was in relation to my adoption but my mom after my sister said that cut off communication with her and to this day still hasn't spoken to her sister since i was adopted and my Mom's niece has reached out to me and has said, you know, can we try to patch things up? Can you talk to your mom? Because my mom is saying that she doesn't have a racist bone in her body. And when I hear that, you know, bells go off in my head. and I think, well, okay, maybe this really is true that my mom said if somebody says they don't have a racist bone in their body, that person pretty much always has multiple organs in their body that are very racist, right? And so uh that's a conversation I had with my mom and she still after I had that conversation doesn't want to have contact with with her sister and for the same reason as she said before and I was just around uh a year ago now that I had that kind of updated conversation with her after so many years so very supportive and protective in that way my mom was always someone who when I was accused of stealing in the store falsely accused that she would go up to the store manager and say, this is unacceptable. We're never coming back here again. You can't treat my son like this. And so both of my moms were very uh, passionate about justice and civil rights. And so we had figures, civil rights figures in and around the house. I learned about the Black civil rights movement in the United States in the 1950s and 60s. And my mom's listened to Motown music. And so I had that. And they also had black friends too, so we had black people coming over to the house. But at the same time, you know, my mom still would make problematic comments once in a while about about black people, kind of this, these microaggressions. When there was a riot, for example, she said, "You know, why do they destroy their own neighborhoods?" It's implied, you know, who the they is there. And so, even though there were these. Good things that they were doing there were still those microaggressions happening at the same time that made me feel uncomfortable and made me feel like well what do i say now in response to what you just said now i have to be in the role of educator to you about something i shouldn't even have to be educating you on and i also have to check you to say you know this is problematic Your language is problematic to someone who is more well-versed on the surface level it would seem than a lot of interracial adoptive parents and for me that also was in relation to their interactions with my birth family because my moms didn't really interact with my birth family very often which was really something that my moms as well as my birth family should have done uh, better and you know my birth family didn't interact with my moms in some ways because of that gendered piece they were Quite frankly, um, prejudice some prejudice towards gay people uh, in in my birth family, and told me so uh, when I visited and and said, you know, two women shouldn't be you know raising you in in this way. And my moms, for their part, were uncomfortable interacting with my birth family as well. So I often felt caught, kind of in between, existing in that space in between there. But with relation to race, my moms sometimes talked about my birth family using language that they didn't understand, was not only hinting at their not honoring my birth family just generally, but also language which they were using, which wasn't honoring the racial identity of of me or my birth family either. So every time my moms would say, how is Angela doing? Instead of saying, how's your sister doing? Every time I would hear, you know, what did she want? what did they, what problem do they have now? It was relating to me that not only did they have an issue with my birth family, but maybe they also have an issue with people that look like me in general. Maybe they think that, you know, I'm one of the good educated people that look like me and my birth family represent some difference there, some stereotypes there. And so there's always this kind of these unsaid things that were said. even though they were culturally aware in other ways, and yes, those peer relationships were very helpful for me, but those peer relationships were not really something that my moms talked about um, to me. They didn't say that you should cultivate these peer relationships, and they didn't have that that talk with me about interacting with the police or anything like that. And so there were gaps that existed there despite their uh, despite some of the knowledge.
0: Thank you. Uh, Anthony, I'm going to come to you and ask you the same question. What's your experience uh, in regard of how your parents um, educated you, but raised you as well, were they supportive in providing that cultural education and also how important being in a black community was it for forming your identity?
3: Yeah. So, for context my adopted family is um my dad's from montserrat which is caribbean island and my mum's from scotland and they have two biological children and i also have a younger adopted brother that they got from the same foster home and we all look similar the amount of comments i get about oh no wonder you're related and we're all definitely not is um amazing but um yeah so that's my family set up and then i also grew up in inner city east london which is extremely diverse um i'd honestly say whiteness is the minority um when i was um in sort of school whatever school it was um and so i think that that seems perfect uh at the start but um i think that my my mom was the one who was mainly doing the raising um and she's white and so i didn't learn that much about black culture at all and in hindsight, I kind of wish I got more stuff about hair, cooking, sort of almost learning about my heritage in terms of like mythology and books and being aware of that. So I think that was an issue. And then also, I think, especially in the UK context, um, there's definitely a big class aspect to adoption as well. And my biological gran is a Windrush migrant from Jamaica, and I'm extremely proud of that lineage. And. Um, but I think when I was adopted I was lifted up sort of to middle class and I felt that the presentations of blackness that were kind of being shown to me were overly kind of negative I was growing up in a council estate um which is sort of like state housing and I don't know if anyone's seen top boy but those was the sort of presentations of blackness that were available to me so I think that I tried to escape my blackness a lot I spent a lot of time in white spaces and um yeah it was just hard to explain to people um so I think that was my experience and yeah I wish my parents and I wish my dad particularly had taught me a lot more about blackness not just in a explicit way because I know the history um I know how what black history was like in the UK and also the US context but more sort of embodied um blackness so whenever I go to you know a, a wedding on my dad's side of the family like would i know the dances would i know (laughs) how to fit in there would i know what fruit this is what food this is um whenever i go visit my aunties and they've got stuff on the table so i think it's really important to um show not just the explicit blackness and to know the history and whilst that's really important but you need to know sort of like the quiet blackness um of blackness as a way of being um, because I think it's less polarized and it's just more sort of tied to a cultural connection. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my experience. And yeah, it just kind of goes to show that although there are there are problems with sort of when your parents are of a different sort of ethnicity and transracial adoption, there are issues, there were also issues um even when the matching is a bit more similar to the child's ethnicity. So, I think that's important to bear in mind.
0: Thank you, Anthony. Annalisa and Morgan, I'm going to come to both of you. And I think for both of you, you've been in the same ways adoption. And I wanted to ask how different is that for you because you'll be adopted in Black families? Would that has that made a difference in forming your identity, or is that still been an issue, despite having an everyday environment that looks like, or similar to what you look like? And if you were also raised in, in a Black community then, or where you were moved, even if you're in the same race, you are removed from that community? So I'm going to start with Annalisa and I'll come to you, Morgan, and ask all the questions that we've been asking from the beginning.
6: Um, Yeah, so I, yeah, so both my adoptive parents are Black Jamaicans. So I always grew up knowing I was Black. Um, As for as long as I can remember, it's been installed in me that even though I'm mixed race, I'm Black. And so that's just been something that my parents have fully said to me. Um, And so I grew up in a, in a white neighborhood. My parents were the, we were the first black family in where I live. So along with that comes a lot of racism being in school because I was like one of five black kids in the school that I was in, everyone was white um but like alongside that my parents were very keen on me learning about my culture my history you know being black Jamaican they both came from jamaica um my my grandparents were on the windrush so like for our family there was a massive sense of history there um, but the one thing, um, and uh, Anthony spoke, spoke about it in terms of class, um, because I think that is he- that's heavily tied up in kind of I guess how I was raised. Because I would say we were middle class. My my mum and dad would be like, no, we were working class, but we were definitely working class that moved up to middle class. Um, and so I had, um, yeah, so, so my upbringing, even though we were black, my parents wouldn't let me associate with like I know. Again, Anthony spoke about Top Boy. I mean. I didn't even know anything about that type of life, to be honest, I've never experienced that. Um, And so my parents were very much like, associate with these type of people, you know, it was just, it was a a very interesting upbringing in some sense. So I had like that culture and I was very, I've never like stressed or worried about who I was in terms of my heritage or am I black, am I not black? I've never had those issues Um, until um, I would say that um, 2016 Black Lives Matter. Um, so I in I, I live in Sheffield currently, I was adopted in London, uh, Sorry, I was born in London um, and I was adopted in Milton Keynes, so I've grown up in Milton Keynes, um, but I've lived in Sheffield since I was about 18, so it's a very multicultural city Sheffield is, um, but in terms of Black Lives Matter, I was one of the um, organisers for the Sheffield 2016 Black Lives Matter protest, and That for me was a really interesting experience because it was the first time where I was like fully immersed around and alongside black people. And I've never... I'd never experienced that before so like it was the first time I'd met like made lots of black friends I've always had white friends up until 2016 and so out of that um I created a social enterprise called Our Mel which looked at history heritage and culture so um and how that what that means to us in Britain today but specifically what that means to be in South Yorkshire in Yorkshire as a black person or as a mixed race person and so that was kind of really what prompted I guess my curiosity in exploring, okay, who I am in terms of blackness, but how that fits in um, sort of, yeah, now, even though I know everything like hist- hist- history-wise, history what does that mean to me in practice? Because like I said, I've always had white friends. Um, so I think that in itself, like meeting other people who are black and like there are so many times where, my friends will be talking about something, my black friends will be talking about something and I have no concept, no understanding of what they're talking about purely because I, I was never kind of exposed to that as a, as a as a young child. So I think even though I've had that kind of history, that upbringing, that identity, um, the practical outworking of that wasn't necessarily there, if that makes sense. Um, but but one thing that my mum did do, my mum, my and I'll always remember this moment, uh, when I was in school, I don't know if you lot have had school book fairs, um, Well, we had like school book fairs all the time in my primary school. And I wanted to read a book and I think it was, um, it was like called Mr. Majika or something like that. It was about a wizard. And I wanted to like buy this book and my, and there was another book there by Mallory Blackman who used to be, she's like a prolific um, black children's writer in the UK. And my mum was like, no, you're not buying this Mr. Majika book, you're buying this uh Mallory Blackman book. And I was really upset because I was like, I don't want to buy that book. And and I and I bought it, and obviously, like Mallory Blackman writes about black children. And so my mum was just so like um, like she, she even marched into my school classroom once because we were talking about we were learning about um, Florence Nightingale, and my mum was like, "No, no, you need to learn about Mary Seacole." So she marched into my school classroom and got the teachers to do that. So I think a lot of my kind of fight and my passion has actually come from my 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 mum, my adoptive mum. But yeah, so I've had a really interesting experience in 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 also the sense that I also don't relate to mixed right ra- other mixed race people um so that's been something that I've really been intrigued by over the last couple of years because a lot of my mixed race friends will have questions or curiosities or kind of issues around them being mixed race and I'm like well I I don't experience that so I think I've had it's, it's a really interesting uh yeah like Anthony has used the word before, complex identities, which I absolutely love. It, it's that kind of, I've got one side of an experience, but not the other side of the of an experience.
0: And I suppose, in, if I remember correctly, your parents are both black, right? So for you yeah. being a mi- adopted as a mixed race, that also had another complexity. So even if your parents were black, you still didn't look like, fully look like, really looked like them. So I suppose that's, yeah, that's also quite complex for your identity.
6: Yeah.
0: Morgan, I'm going to come to you. So I'm going to ask you the first question. And if you could just re, um, tell us about what reclaiming your identity means to you and then tell us what uh, your experience is about being raised in the same race household and if that has helped with your identity formation um reclaiming my
1: um identity has a lot to do with truth um i think um i've known my entire life that i was adopted but um i think my biggest fear growing up was that i was a secret um and besides that um i would always get the question of what are you in the sense of my racial identity. And because I had no background, um, I had a closed adoption in the 80s, um, it was not something that I could fully answer. Um, And so I would, you know, have problems doing classroom assignments where, you know, you had to um, do your family tree. Or, you know, like I said, having, you know, being on the bus and someone's like, you know, you look like you're this, what are you? and so i would literally just start making up stuff just to be able to have an answer for people um and so i think reclaiming my identity really has to do with truth um and being my authentic self and knowing exactly what that is from root to to fruit um and i was that's that's really what it is for me um as far as growing up in a same race um family um honestly just like Annalise mine was the same um I grew up um in a middle working class family um and so majority of the time I was around white people. Um, the only time I wasn't is if I was at church, really. Um, and so, all of my extracurriculars, I was predominantly one of the few, if not only, uh, Black people. But once I went to church and was doing things that was, um, you know, affiliated with church, which was predominantly Black, that is pretty much the only space I was ever in where I was a majority. Um, my parents my mother's from the south my dad is from um the caribbean so i got two different um perspectives as far as growing up and principles because um you know they they most definitely are different um but race really wasn't much of a conversation except for knowing who i was maybe having conversations um As um, Abby was saying, you know, as far as, you know, what to do in school or how to deal with, you know, certain microaggressions, you know, why you can't do X, Y, and Z, but, you know, maybe, you know, Jenny can, you know, those kind of conversations. So we would have those, but um, I wouldn't say I was completely immersed um, in the culture. My freshman year, um, I attended Oberlin College. Um, And I chose to live in the African Heritage House specifically because I wanted to feel closer to the community. And one of the first things that um, I experienced was people pretty much telling me that I wasn't black because I hadn't seen certain movies or I didn't, you know, I I didn't know certain things. Um, And, um, you know, as Annalise was saying, like my my parents made sure that I knew certain things, but then there were other things where it was like, that's not who we associate with or that's not what we do. Or they would point out certain things, you know, as we're driving through, you know, New York city, this is what, you know, a slum looks like, but it's not like we, you know, ever spent any time in there. So there was a bit of a disconnect. And so once I got to college, that was the time in which I kind of just, um, did actually the same thing as Abby, I changed my major from neuroscience to Black American studies, just specifically so that I could, um, from a cultural perspective, feel like I was a little bit more connected, because if nothing else, I did know that I was Black. I didn't know if I was anything else um, at the time. But at that point, um, that's, you know, that's what I felt like I needed t- um, a little bit more to feel like I was myself. Um, coming into a search and doing things you know through you know ancestry or whatnot i found myself in the same place um as um i believe anthony was saying about you know the complexity of things because once i found out about heritage i never really considered myself to be biracial i still consider myself to be black and what exactly does it mean to now honor this other part which is also rooted in rape So, you know, there's a lot of different facets and things. And it's like, do you actually want to claim that? Is this a part of something that, you know, I want to actually get to know? Do I want to just stay in what I have known this entire time? Um, And what exactly does that mean for me moving forward? Do I still consider myself as a Black woman or do I now say that I'm biracial? That's a, you know, it's a a funny thing to think of um, and try to grapple with.
0: Thank you so much, everyone. And yeah, it's very complex uh, when it comes to our identity and what it means to be adop- adopted an adoptee and being Black, being biracial, being mixed race. Uh, there's so many layers to it. And our environment does play um, some sort of you know, it can help or it, it might not help. So all of us have a different take on it. I'm gonna give each one of you on the panel the chance to ask each other's questions just to follow up from what you've heard. As any of you so far want to ask each other some questions.
1: I know I definitely have a question for um Tony, um, especially because you, um, have an open adoption. I have a closed um, or my adoption was closed and it wasn't until um, maybe about six years ago that I was able to actually have any kind of access to birth information. Um, What, I know you spoke a little bit about the lack of communication or relationship between um, your adoptive moms and your birth family, but what exactly is that experience of actually knowing where you're coming from but still being
4: displaced so to speak Hmm. that's a really great question yeah it's exactly that though right it's knowing where you come from meaning for me i knew who my mom was my birth mom was and is and i knew my birth father's name even though i didn't meet him and i knew Who my birth sister was and is. And I saw her when I was growing up, and we interacted a lot uh, when I was growing up. But at the same time, it's Christmas time in the United States, well, everywhere. And, um, you know, normally around this time of year, when I was younger, I would go and I would visit my birth family and I would spend Christmas Day with them. And then I would spend Christmas Eve, uh, evening with my moms. And in both of those spaces, I felt out of place. In both of those spaces, I felt as though, in interacting with my birth family, that well, the food's really great here. I love this uh, food, and I love that I'm around people who look like me, and that I don't stand out from that perspective. But the things that Anthony was mentioning about you know, culturally, there were still some differences that existed there that reminded me of my difference. Even from members of my birth family. And my difference was constantly pointed out by specifically my grandmother, who would say things like, I bet they don't let you have any Black friends, or do you have a boyfriend? You know, do you have a girlfriend yet? So these sexist things, these prejudice things sometimes, and either way, just reminders of my difference when I just wanted to fit in with the, the only family that. I knew genetically was tied to me. And then going to interact with my mom's friends during that Christmas evening time and experiencing people continuously saying, Oh, he's so articulate. Oh, he's he's so this, he's so that, and kind of fawning over this black boy in a way that looking back that I knew was problematic and was based on these racialized you know, narratives. And so just because, um, well, I was able to interact with my birth family, but that for me did not mean that I felt like I was a true member of my birth family. And my particular adoption is complicated because I was in an open adoption. I did interact with my birth family, but when I was 14 years old, I found out that the people that I had been interacting with all those Christmases, all those Thanksgivings, that they were actually not members of my birth family, that I had been going to my grandmother's home, and I still call her my grandmother, but that she had claimed to be my grandmother because it was easier for her to gain custody. There was a large custody battle in my case, and it was easier for her to gain custody if she claimed to be my grandmother. And so that's what she claimed and no one told me that her family was not my family and so some of the comments that my cousins were making about you know why is tony here he's not family started to make more sense feeling like i didn't quite belong started to make more sense people not really telling me a lot of stories about my father about my mother started to make more sense and my birth sister is my birth sister and she was someone i interacted with there but there was so much, you know, unknown that came with knowing some things. It was like you get these, these little puzzle pieces, but then they don't give you these other pieces of the puzzle that you need to complete it. And so it's still very frustrating. And in my case, I also learned when I was 19 years old that I had another sister out there who's also my birth sister, who's a full sibling, sister that I know is a half sibling, and my full uh sibling sister, she was adopted in a closed adoption. And so I don't have information on her and I'm seeking to, um, to learn more about her now. But basically it's just, for me, difficult knowing that I have these certain pieces of information and I have, unlike many adoptees, been able to see my birth mom's face and my sister's smile and what they look like. And that makes me feel good to see this mirror. But at the same time, you still not have been able to actually grow up with them. To actually not have seen my father, to actually not have seen my sister are still pieces of loss that are now pieces of of who who I've come to be as well. So it's frustrating and and also at the same time, something that I realize um has been you know an experience that has allowed me to be in community with with people that are are my family. And so something that that I also cherish in that way.
0: Annalisa. A I just question. wanted to
6: ask, how have you made peace with that, Tony? Because that sounds quite a lot there. So I'm just really intrigued. How have you made peace with like with all of that?
4: <laughs> yeah, and I think you know making peace, and I I like that phrase. And um, I heard Anthony you mention that earlier. I don't feel that like I have made peace with that, and I think that's okay. You know, I think that. I'm evolving. We're all we're all evolving, and I'm not going to sit here and say that I am broken up about it kind of every single night. And I think about it every single night um, because I don't. But at the same time, I don't feel that that I'm at peace and, and I don't feel that I should be. You know, I don't feel that being separated from your family is something that you should have to be asked, you know, come to peace with. You can have peace in your life without coming to peace over certain things in your life that shouldn't have been in the first place. None of us should have been separated from our families in the first place. And in my case, there's complexity even after you know separation and action, the birth family and not being birth family, and so it's it's frustrating. Um, But at the same time, my family as an adoptee. I have chosen family, and that's something that we talk about all the time as adoptees. My best friend is my brother. You know, my friends are my family, and I'm able to declaim them as that. And it's not about filling this void or this hole for me. It's about wanting to be in community with people who recognize all of who I am in ways that are, when you take the good and the bad, unproblematic. Um, and that are reinforcing who I am and also helping me evolve at the same time. And that doesn't give me a sense of peace around that initial separation, grief and loss, or those missing puzzle pieces, but it does help me exist in a healthy way in my day-to-day life and moving forward um, and allows me also to acknowledge the pain that's, that's there as a result of, of those other things too.
3: Anthony, you've got the questions? Yeah, um, I've got a question for um, all the panel members. Uh, I think we've sort of spoken a lot about sort of our identity in the past and how we've dealt with that. But what I'm really interested in, is there like an emerging part of your identity that you're just sort of working with, experimenting with? Because to be honest, I feel like personally, I've kind of got my mixed identity down and my adoptee identity down. I feel very comfortable with that. But stuff that I'm experimenting at the moment with is like my gender identity, sort of like pretending to have been a boy or a male, um, you know, when I was younger. And then also like my queer identity on top of that. So I was just wondering if anyone's got an emerging thing that they're kind of just like working through in the present.
5: I'll answer. So um, I think that I've had identities emerge my entire life and thinking about. So um as a child, we lived overseas um, in in Egypt, and we always went to schools where my parents um, taught, where my mom taught. And so, my ado- adoptee identity wasn't a thing I ever thought about because everyone always knew. And so, as a child, I kind of started with my American identity, and then we moved back to the U.S. as my black identity. And then, as I left um, the schools where my mom taught, it was my adoptee identity. And I would say, over the last like couple of years, I'm actually starting to really work on my identity as a birth mother and as a birth mother who's also an adoptee Um, and I think part of that was coming into the realization that this choice (laughs) that I made out of love was really coercion made out of fear Um, and so recognizing that just in the past couple of years and working through that identity in the space of working with adoptees has been very interesting Um, and then I think also like working through just the identity as being a black woman was was a big one for me um, years ago as a mother. So yeah, all, all of those, and now as a grandmother, um, all of those, uh, I think it just is a thing that happens with our identities that as we move through different spaces and have different realizations that these emerging things come up. But yeah, definitely right now, it's that, my, that kind of identity as a birth mother is my emerging identity as you put it. It's a great question.
6: I think for me, um, like I previously mentioned, my mum died two years ago. And I think a lot of my identity was kind of wrapped up in who my adoptive parents wanted me to be. And so I think even though I've always been a very like, I'll do what I want type of child and I've like always done what I wanted. I followed whatever career route I wanted to follow. Um, but I think at the core, it's still always been about, and I know this is true, it's always been about what will please my adoptive parents. Um, and so when my mum died, it was the first time where I was like, shit, I'm alone. Because like I literally when my mum died, I lost my entire family because I've never had a great relationship with like my extended family. Um, my dad, my adopted dad and I, we're we're not close. We're <laughs> we we've always just got issues. I've got a sister who's also adopted. Um, and that in itself causes its own complications um and so I it really when my mum died it really forced me to kind of like stand on my own two feet and be like okay who am I now who am I when I don't have any links like at all to family like who am I and so that has kind of really um I don't know if any of you have lost a parent or if you've lost, an, you know, your adopted parent. That in itself is like you lose your whole sense of who you are. Like, because not only do you lose like your only connection to family, but it's like you're also dealing with or still dealing or whatever with that grief and the loss of obviously um, having lost like your birth parents as well. So for me, it's been a really interesting experience the last two years, And I think I'm only just starting to really understand, okay, who am I? As Annalisa, like I changed my surname at the start of this year, um, because my my adoptive mum. Sure, I, I mean I've been going by Takara since 2011, but my adoptive mum said to me, "If you change your name, we won't give you your inheritance." So of course, that in itself is like emotional blackmail, really. Um, and so I never changed my surname. I, I hate I hate my my adoptive surname with a massive passion Um, and so I was like okay I won't do it I won't do it and then I went I've been seeing a therapist for the last year and a bit and she's been amazing and um, like I've been going to her and talking about this and that and then I was like do you know what I'm just gonna go and I'm gonna change my surname so I changed it and that in itself is just kind of that like path to freedom really or that path to this new identity of who i am as annalisa takara jones i added the jones in because it's my birth mother's surname um and takara is just if any of you've watched the uh, america's next top model with takara jones that's literally where the surname comes from no relation to me whatsoever but i was like i like that i'm gonna stick it in as my surname so yes i legally changed my name to takara jones um so i think for me i'm kind of on that exploration as to okay who am i at this present moment in time with no family like i've got no family like i'm spending christmas alone but i'm going to a log cabin and i'm creating my own family i've got um pet rabbits so i'm creating my my own family (laughs) um but like who am i i don't know yet i'm still exploring that as as who i am as annalisa
1: i think that's a very beautiful and uh vulnerable answer um and i when i say i feel you 110 percent um i am um in an estranged relationship with um my birth mother so it is almost the same as feeling as though i have you know lost a parent and the the journey to who exactly I am in the same time also being in reunion with um, my birth father um, has been a lot. Um, And so on top of now figuring out who I am as a mother, um, you know, I have two children. Um, I am the second child. Um, My birth mother decided to keep my sibling. Um, And so when I was pregnant with um, my youngest son, I was scared that I could not be enough or what kind of mother was I going to be? Or was I going to get to you know, possibly a place where I was like, I can't do this either. And so now I too am relinquishing a child. So it had a lot to do with my own identity. What exactly does this mean for me? Because now I'm in another path. Um, and that hurt also because I couldn't go to my mom and have these conversations um, for both pregnancies. We did not have any kind of conversations. And so I kind of dealt with them alone. And so, um, you know, once like life really started lifing, I was realizing that I'm on my own and I have to figure this out Um And so what exactly does that mean, learning how to really trust my gut and the very things that I knew from the beginning or as a child that I was feeling that I was told wasn't right or, you know, that I was the... The phrase was, I don't know where you got that from, or you you didn't get that from, you surely didn't get that from me or from us. Those kind of things, those separatist things that really just made me feel at the end of the day that I was different still and not a part of. It's real now trying to be able to tap into that and trust that. And now also then be able to translate that to my 13-year-old son who was dealing with the same exact thing when it comes to self-esteem and being able to trust himself and love who he is regardless of whether or not people are
5: accepting of him or understanding him around him.
4: Anyone else want to answer
0: the question from Anthony? Or shall we open up to the audience for more questions?
5: I'd like to add just onto mine as the emerging adoptee question, because in reunion, there's also, um, and, and Morgan me think of that as like in reunion, there's also a kind of emerging place. Um, for me, luckily, um, I'm still in the same birth order um, after finding my bio- biological family on both sides, but finding out who I am as their sister, my sibling's sister, when they grew up together, and I'm the only one who didn't, um, it, if that has been an identity that I'm trying to navigate still, um, I found them in 2017 and still trying to figure out like what that relationship looks like. They're completely open and loving on my mother's side. I mean, I'm sorry, on my dad's side, um, but even though my dad died, not even knowing that I've been conceived, they've been completely open to it, but it still is navigating a space where I don't necessarily feel comfortable calling myself their sibling because we don't have shared experiences, but they're calling me their sibling. And so navigating what how I show up in that space has also been kind of a weird emergence of an identity as a sister to people who aren't necessarily... You're not necessarily feeling that connection, um, that same same shared experience with. So that's been a really weird thing as well.
6: I resonate with that because I've also um, connected with some of my birth family on my dad's side. And I video, I've not met my dad in person yet, my biological dad, but we videoed. And it's been a really weird experience because they all really want me to like, they live in London and they all want me to come down and like spend time with them, like my cousins. And I've met like three of them and it's been lovely each time. Like I've just met them um, in Silo um, in Sheffield because oddly enough, they've got family in Sheffield. So it's it's been weird, but... um I'm like, I am I part of your family? Like, I know I am, but it's that disconnect. I feel a massive disconnect. And I think, because for me, I'm still trying to figure out who I am and I'm trying to, I've, I'm doing a PhD. Like, I don't know, if, I know Tony's doing a PhD, but that takes a lot out of you, a lot of energy, a lot of space. And I'm just like, do I have time to like figure out my relationship with my birth family i want to i want to meet my birth dad but at the same time i'm doing a phd like i don't have energy i don't you know so it's, for me it's been it's a really interesting like experience at the moment because like and i feel like this sense of guilt or this sense of like i owe them uh, like a phone call or or like i owe them to go see them and it's like no i don't but it's really difficult to kind of figure out my place in like meeting these new people who i've i've technically been in reunion for like two, like again, two, two and a half years. So I'm like, (laughs) and I've not, I've only met three of them and not met my biological dad yet. So I dunno, it's a, it's an odd experience.
0: Does any of you have any more questions for the other panel member? We haven't got any questions from the chat, so we can carry an asking question or I can ask question if you haven't got any. But I wanted to, to give you the opportunity to ask each other questions while here.
4: I do see um, one question.
1: Yeah, I was going to say the same thing.
0: Okay, Tony, go first and then Morgan after.
4: The question uh, was from Dr. Marianne. And she said, uh, uh, Dr. Marianne McMillan, And she said, can everyone answer the question about navigating relationships with their birth siblings and adopted siblings? So uh, I didn't have any adopted siblings, but my relationship with my birth sibling, my sister, uh, has been complicated throughout my entire life. My birth sister is nine years older than I am, and she always felt guilty about not being able to take custody of me herself. Apparently she went to the courts when she was 13 years old and she said, you know, I wanna take care of Tony. And of course they said, you're a minor, you can't do that. And she felt guilty about not being able to provide for me in that way and felt guilty about our family not being able to stay together. My birth mom happens to be schizophrenic. And so my sister, also had to endorse seeing some of my mother's uh, episodes in a way that I didn't see when I was growing up. And my sister said to me when I was in my 20s that you had this better life, and I had to stay behind, and you had support, and I didn't, and she didn't realize that there were losses on my side of things, too. You know, Annalisa, you talked about losing your adoptive Losing your mom, I lost my adoptive mom when I was 12 years old, and so my entire teenage years was was without her. And my sister and I, my sister and I have had to have some really tough conversations. Conversations where I have had to say, you know, I, I understand, and I don't understand your experience. And at the same time, it's important that you understand and try to understand my experience, and that we both are victims of this system, that we both were separated from each other, but that we have an opportunity now to really engage in a way with each other in ways that we weren't able to before. And we still have a pretty fraught uh, relationship and where we both had to do some giving giving and taking in that relationship. And I, I think it's another example of that evolution, you know, our relationships with our families are evolving things. And my sister just always just really wanted her brother to be there with her and, and deeply craved that. And she was by herself. She didn't have loving parents. Um, and i do not saying that my parents were these, quote, you know, loving parents in a problematic adoption language, but she didn't have that. She grew up with my grandmother who kicked her out of the house when she got pregnant at 16 and she was literally on her own and was couch surfing and then went into the military after that um and so and had to raise her daughter by herself and so she she really went through a lot of difficult uh, circumstances and i wasn't in a position because of my age uh quite frankly to be able to support her emotionally uh financially um in in the ways that I would have liked to. And so that is something that we've also spoken about. And I think that it takes a lot of reflection on our own experiences and also reflection on the experiences of our siblings with regard to these kind of complex sibling uh, relationships. Anyone else want to answer that
0: question?
2: I can. Um, So I am one of four. Um, I have an older brother who is white and then two younger siblings that are black. Um, And all of us are adopted. None of us are biologically related. And so I have a contrast in my own family system as to the relationship I have with my siblings. My older brother is very crass. He was... He was in the Marines. He's just a very, um, not interested in becoming culturally competent. Um, and so obviously there's a strained relationship there because I feel like he does not respect, um, my siblings and I in our full existence or really anyone of any marginalized group. And so, um, there's lots of conversations that are just better not had at family gatherings and i think um after a conversation that did erupt that we just kind of realized that some conversations at like you know special family gatherings should not happen and maybe can be saved and tabled for later and then with my younger siblings they are six and seven years younger than me and so definitely growing up I've. I kind of took on like a motherly role of feeling like I needed to take care of and protect them. Um, Again, I grew up in a home where we weren't having conversations about race, racism, microaggressions. And so as the older sibling who had experienced those things, I really put um, the responsibility on myself to have those conversations because I knew they were gonna experience them, um, especially, my younger brother as a black male, my younger sister as well, but, um, I think, um, being lighter skin, I, even from a younger age, saw, um, how colorism and texturism and featureism, how those things impacted her differently than her two dark-skinned siblings, um, and so we continue to have a great relationship, I mean, we're still really close, they still come to me, <laughs> um, for advice and you know just whatever but um it's still hard because I think sometimes I'm not the fun sister all the time I think I'm very um I want the best for them I love them and I do give them a sense of nurturance but I also am like you can't present yourself in the same way as your white friends and as you know older teenagers, young 20 year olds, that's really hard, right? They want to be out doing the fun things. And I have to be really honest with them about how that will impact them differently than their white friends. Um, and then I have made contact with one of my birth siblings and he did not know I existed. I reached out to him on Facebook. And so, um, it was definitely a process because not only is he processing that he has a sister that he didn't know about because um, he was nine or 10 years old when I was born. So I think he was recalling a lot of the memories of that time as to why he doesn't remember his mom being pregnant and placing a child. Um, and he has an estranged relationship from our birth mother. And so he Um, isn't in a place to have any conversations regarding our mother or his child rearing years. And so it's really, um, we love each other. You know, he always says like, I, you know, I want to make up for lost time or anything like that. But I think it is hard to maintain a relationship with someone that, you know, you have a biological connection to, but they're essentially a stranger. And how do we get to know each other? How do we catch up on um, lost time? And again, if him not um, wanting to really talk about his life outside of, you know, what he's doing presently, Um, there's definitely just a barrier there and I feel like he is very closed off and reserved to me at times. So it's hard. And, um, as much as it is for me to navigate and just, um, you know, he's trying to be patient with me. I also have to be that for him and, um, know that he's also navigating, um, the lies and the secrets that were, um, that he was told in regards to me, um, or in that time in his family's life.
0: Thank you, Lydia. Um, I hear the word lies and secret coming back quite a lot. And I think that's also come back to a lot of the the, the podcast, on the podcast we discussed, that's a lot. Um, and I, I wish you could talk about it, but we are running out of time and you still got the one question in the chat. So I, I want to acknowledge uh, the question in the chat. And it's um, any tips on being okay with not people pleasing and embracing one's feeling, Uh, not changing behavior to fit in or be accepted. I feel like I've had to be people pleaser, growing up as a mixed race adoptee to a single white mother. I'm 34 and I am struggling around this. Anyone of of you on the panel would like to share how to to deal with that the, the people pleasing and any emotions that might be linked to going up as a an adoptee
1: um i know when i was 34 that was definitely a big thing um i'm still at 38 uh, dealing with that but um i'm definitely um in a better place um, I think the the biggest tip or the biggest thing that you can do in working on the people pleasing is really working on yourself. Um, and it's your own self-worth and knowing um, that you are enough and you are um, you are your own vibe just like you know we've always we grew up hearing that you know I'm not everyone's cup of tea um actually embrace that um because those who like what's in your cup are going to stick around um and those are your people um those who don't that is actually their problem and once you stop taking things personally which is i think something that we do a lot we internalize other people's um reactions or um or even assumptions about us. And we take a lot of these things personally, rather than looking at what is this telling me about them, rather than what are they saying, um, or, or what is this saying about me? Um, my therapist is very, very big on, I, and I'm big on um, um on therapy uh, when it comes to, processing adoption trauma and identity issues. Um, He always says to me, like when it comes to boundaries, a lot of that people pleasing has to do with boundaries and our lack of knowing how to set healthy boundaries or not even being able to set them at all. And so he says these boundaries are like a windshield for you and people are constantly going to be throwing stuff. That's just the way that life is. And the windshield as that boundary, it's either going to stick or it's not if and what that the question for you is what is this is what is what is being said or what is being asked of me something true or something that i need to give if it is or something that i need to take in then roll down the window and let it come through if it's not it's not something that you identify with you know that it's you know not something that is indicative of who you are then let the wiper go and keep it moving um And the more that you get to love yourself and feel like you are enough, um, the less you feel like you have to give of yourself so that you feel like you are um, wanted or connected. In actuality, what you are doing is attracting people into your space rather than you trying to fit
0: into other spaces. Thank you, Morgan. Anthony, you've got your hands up
3: yeah uh, I want to echo everything that Morgan said um so important to value yourself um and just to give some sort of specific resources and practices I've really found sort of positive affirmations really helpful um just putting them on sort of whilst you're getting ready brushing your teeth that kind of thing is really useful and specifically for boundaries because that was a huge problem for me um set boundaries find peace by Nedra Glover Tawab um who's a black um therapist um was just game changing in terms of like just being able to articulate your own worth and boundaries and not making your expectation and needs negotiable um i totally recommend that book for anyone um adoptee or not who is working on their boundaries and people pleasing
0: thank you uh and then
6: yeah just to say like boundaries has been a massive thing of mine that i'm like really kind of trying to work on recently and i think it also relates in some sense to the question before about um like relationships with adopted uh, siblings um because one of my like the only person who ever can really push my button <laughs> and get to me is my sister my adopted sister and i have really we have a very tricky relationship um and i've got eight, eight nieces um sorry six nieces two nephews um and i've always wanted kids and so um one thing that I've really had to start doing just for my own sanity is to kind of put a boundary between me and my sister which also means a boundary between me and my my nephews and, and my nieces unfortunately um but I think for me that has been the only way that I'm able to kind of exist as me because the majority of my life um has been about my sister has been about the trauma that she suffered I mean we've both suffered trauma but my sister's gone through a lot and and so a lot of my life has kind of been really wrapped up in in hers and um I've always kind of found myself in the middle between like my adoptive parents and my sister um and like trying to people please them both and never being able to please them both and then also meaning that I'm denying my own kind of self-worth my own you know and um it's something that I've worked been working with a lot of my therapists in in kind of like yeah like taking my place as as me in my own right um, and not kind of letting my sister get in there, <laughs> which sounds mean, uh, but I've had to put boundaries in, and so that's something because I'm I've been a massive people pleaser. Um, I'm like that in my jobs or in anything I do, so. I've really had to kind of set a boundary and I think just recently I'm like okay like I said like I'm discovering who I am and I'm discovering what I want to do and like where my place fits and what my identity is and so with that comes a lot of boundaries but honestly it's been so far it's been beautiful it's been hard but it's been beautiful thank
0: you thank you we are coming to the end um of our time together I w- I mean There's so much to discuss still, but, you know, we've got limited time. But I want to give an opportunity to each one of you to tell our audience what's next for you. What is there anything you would like to to promote in your work, your project, your books? um, So this is the moment to share with us. So uh, Lydia, is there anything you would like our audience to know about your work?
2: Mm. Um, right now I'm just kind of continuing to share on Instagram. So you're more than welcome to follow me there as I share, you know, just my experience as an adoptee and just, um, this continual road of, um, stepping into my most authentic self. I think I've realized, um, a lot of things as I'm also preparing to get married. Um, And so just um, the identity, you know, being able to marry a wonderful Black man and just um, have that part of my identity um, affirmed and just as, um, you know, just leaning into that is a really beautiful time. And I think, also just kind of like healing that adaptive side of me as well to make sure I'm the healthiest person I can be, um, stepping into a partnership. Um, so yeah, I think that's all right now.
0: Congratulations. And it's really exciting. I mean, I was very excited to hear about it when we had the podcast together. So congratulations again, Anthony, what's next for you? And is there anything that you would like our audience to know about your work?
3: Well, immediately next, I'm going to have a two week break. I've got my birthday on the second and it just feels like it's been a mad dash. Um, But in the new year, I'm going to continue writing articles uh, on my LinkedIn, Anthony Emmanuel Lynch. And with uh, In Between Lines, which is my product on complex identities, we're looking at touring more places in the United Kingdom, um, sort of wanting to develop more workshop facilitation opportunities lived experience consulting and really just building on this sort of um sort of trend towards lived experience in all sort of forms of uh organizations and making sure that again yeah it's embedded in all forms of decision making and yes I'll try to come to Sheffield as well Annalisa <laughs> let's make Annalisa. it happen
0: thank you Annalisa What's next for you or what's happening? What you'd like oh, people so to know? Very much.
6: <laughs> um, so I guess what's literally next, um so I've been working on a project with the University of Sheffield. Um it's an educational project, um, and it's a platform that is about transracial adoption, but it's providing tools and resources to uh transracially adopted par- uh sorry, parents of transracially adopted children. So that platform launches literally on Friday, um, which I'm so excited about because it's a partnership with the Centre of Equity and Inclusion at the University of Sheffield. Um, so there's that. <laughs> so I'll be sharing it on all sorts of social platforms when we go live. Um, and then also my own PhD research, I'm hoping to start recruiting. So basically I'm looking for, and unfortunately is isn't based in the UK, but I'm looking for any adoptee who kind of engages with social media on adoption. So whether that is, you talk about your adoption experience or you just kind of watch the conversations on socials. So I will be recruiting people for that because I need data basically for my research. Um, and then the third thing is... Um, I've been working on a book for the last two years, which explores the global adoption system as a whole. Um, So looking at lots of the topics that we've spoken about here, looking at human trafficking, uh, child trafficking, um, kind of the profit and supply in adoption, also centering on kind of adoption practice in the UK. So that book, fingers crossed, will be coming out soon. So uh, basically I need promotion with that as well. (laughs) So um, I will be sharing everything when everything kind of all goes live, but yeah. That's it for me. Great,
0: amazing. Abby. what would you like to share on, on your future work or any work happening at the moment?
5: So um, I will be keynoting at Untangling Roots, um, the upcoming uh, uh, conference that is adoptees and other uh, DNA discoveries and NPE. So it's a, a combination of our communities, donor conceived community as well. Um, in April. And then I will, my memoir will be coming out in 2024. And so it's called Adopting Privilege. And that will be coming out in 2024. So hoping to kind of get that more out there and just doing, uh, I have a lot more speaking coming up with the goal of getting on the big TED Talk stage um, in the next two years is my my goal. So pray for that for me. Um, um, But yeah, that's this, and just connecting with anyone, um, adoptees who are um, looking for therapists, specifically in Texas right now, um just growing that practice as well.
0: Okay, hey, amazing. Thank you. Tony, what's happening for you? What do you want
4: to share with us? Right away, just working on my PhD and trying to get that finished. And I look forward to reporting on more of my findings and sharing that in more open spaces and making sure that it's accessible, uh, doesn't just exist in this ivory tower that we often keep things tied to academia in. And aside from that, continuing my work at the Center for Adoption Support and Education as a training specialist. So anyone who wants to learn more about what that organization does, it's an organization that's basically a half mental health organization providing therapeutic services for adoption uh, kinship families and half education, providing training offerings for anyone looking to learn more about adoption. Um, I also do something called uh, the adopt the author series, which I have started there. And so, well, it sounds like a few new authors will be on that author series if, if they would like to be from this panel. And so looking forward uh, to some more, to more authors in in the next year. And uh, anyone who wants to learn more about my life from a personal perspective can check out uh, my book. It's a memoir called The Son with Two Moms, and you can find it just by typing my name into Amazon. And so, yeah, just wanted to thank everyone though, and and you for, for being, with us and asking us to be community here.
0: Thank you. And Morgan, do you have anything to share with us about your current work or future work?
1: Um, Yes, I um, am currently looking to expand um, even more my support specifically for doulas, um, I mean for adoptees in the doula space. Um, So that's what I'll be doing. Um, I do host um, a female uh, entrepreneurship podcast, um, which empowers um, and inspires um, current entrepreneurs as well as future entrepreneurs. Um, So if any of you um, ladies would like to be able to join um, at any point in time. I'll make sure that the timing hopefully is not too far off. Um, but to be able to you know, promote your books, um, promote your businesses and what you guys are doing, um, and to share awareness um, as well as empower and encourage, I would love to have you. Um, with that being said, that does not exclude you, um, Tony and Anthony, from um, being a part of the podcast as well. We actually have, at the end of every month, Um, a great segment called He Said, She Said, where we love to have um, both male and female perspectives um, on all types types of uh, topics. So, um, you know, would love to definitely have you guys as well. And then obviously you can, you know, shamelessly plug what you guys are doing as well. Um, I am looking to start a blog this year um, as I am new to sharing my um, adoption journey and experience. Um, And so that um, I feel like is a part of my healing journey with this. Um, But also, hopefully, um, it will be able to help other adoptees, um, but more importantly, um, prospective um, or current adoptive parents um, so that they can have a different kind of insight from, um, you know, our standpoint um, and and lived experiences um, so that they can be better parents.
0: Thank you so much. Oh, you you all are doing so much in that adoption space, then that is really amazing to hear. Um, and I also want to to invite you all to just send me any update, any event that you're involved, so I can also support and promote that on my platform. So every time if you have an event coming up, of your book coming up, please do. Let me know and I will support and, and share with um, the community. So we, we are coming to the end. we already over the time that we're allocated. Uh, so for me, I am posing as well for the holiday. So this is the reason we're having this live um, session today because I'm stopping the, the podcast for a few weeks. We've got another session on Wednesday uh, with the rest of the podcast guest that came, um, on, on my podcast previously. So I also would like to invite you to join us on Wednesday, if you are available. Um, and I will be resuming season two of the podcast in the new year. So if there's any black adoptees that would like to join us on that journey, please do contact me on, um, Instagram and, black adoptees identities. I am also working on putting a retreat in the new year, um, one in Portugal and one in Morocco and probably another one in Senegal in 2024, if everything happened (laughs) Um, and there is a demand for it. So um, do reach out if you are interested to be in the space with other Black women adoptees, um, and it will be a great opportunity to continue this conversation, to learn about each other, and then build the community uh, on a face-to-face basis. And I'll be joined. I think, um, Stephanie is here with us today, uh, but we'll talk a bit more on Wednesday about the retreat when Stephanie um, is also on the panel. So thank you very much, everyone. And thank you so much for your time. It's it's really appreciated. And thank you very much to everyone who's joined in the audience. Uh, It's it's been a really good uh, conversation. And do keep in touch, everyone, uh, either online or or hopefully one day face to face. Uh, I hope we can meet face to face at some point in our lives thank you so much um I don't know if anyone have one last things to say before we part always so any any last words from any one of you
3: just want to say thank you Christelle for setting this all up having us all on um I just really wish that I had this sort of podcast before when I was younger and it's just been so special to connect with so many talented people in this space and it's amazing that you facilitated that so thank you
0: thank you very much and thank you to everyone so I will see again very soon hopefully take care thank you and have a good night good morning (laughs) and good afternoon (laughs) depending where you are thank you thank you everyone This is Christelle Pericure and you have been listening to Black Adoptees Identities, where Black adult adoptees share their stories. Please do share and subscribe to our podcast, and do stay connected with us by following us on Instagram at Black Adoptees Identities. Thank you for listening to this week's episode, and until next time, goodbye.